Hi folks, Jason Crane here reminding you about the 100 by 300 campaign. The idea is to get 100 members by the 300th show. Membership is easy. You can do it in one lump sum each year or month to month for as little as 10 bucks a month or $110 a year. If you choose one of the higher levels, particularly the $500 a year or $50 a month level, you'll be mentioned on every single show. You'll be an official sponsor of the Jazz Session. The 100 by 300 campaign, visit thejazzsession.com slash join to become a member today. Once again, that's thejazzsession.com slash join. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is available for free at TheJazzSession.com, a fact that will remain true if you become a member. I need uh, 100 members by the 300th show to make this show financially viable enough to keep doing it. And that means I need you to go to thejazzsession.com slash join and become a member today. Thanks. You can also find the show on iTunes, or you can subscribe using an RSS reader. And the links for all of those things are on the left side of the page at thejazzsession.com, as are links to all of the previous episodes, sorted last name first by artist. And then at the bottom of the page, uh, the left side, you'll find a category link that will allow you to sort by instrument. So if you want to look up all the guitarists or all the piano players or all the trumpeters who've ever been on the show, you can just use that category sort, and that will bring up all of the posts in whichever category you choose. It's a pretty handy way for you to navigate through the jazz session besides just having to know the names of everyone who's uh, been on the show. My thanks to the Respect Sextet, who recorded the theme music for this show, and who tomorrow night, if you're listening to this in real time, so Tuesday night in New York City, are recording a live album, and the details about that are at respectsextet.com. Please go and support them. Thanks also to Dave Vrabel, who designed the show's logo and who tweets at twitter.com slash Dave Vrabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. Today's show features an interview with Noah Preminger. I had never met Noah before recording this interview, and I had a really great time talking to him. Just a very interesting guy. And he's got a really interesting new record, which... You'll hear us talk about it in the interview. This first track gives you a taste of one aspect of the record, but certainly not the entire record. But here it is, his take on where or when. Thank 
My guest is Noah Preminger. He's got a new CD called Before the Rain, which is on Palmetto, and uh, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Let me start right off. Um, I wanted to ask you about the uh, track sequencing on this record, mm-hmm. and particularly the first two tracks. It starts off with uh, where or when this two-minute read of the melody that would have been at home on any record in the last like 70 years, and then it goes into this very free, open, like rolling polyrhythmic drum thing. And that strikes me as kind of a, a, a daring and interesting way to start the record. And I wanted to ask you about why you chose to do it that way. Um, actually, where when we didn't, that wasn't a complete take. I don't know if you're supposed to like admit these things or not. That's fine. But uh, I guess I, I don't know. <laughs> um, we did, we're, I mean, this is kind of a band where it's like a one take thing and, and, you know, like in the moment kind of one take thing and then next tune um but that tune for some reason uh it took us a little longer to kind of get a feel of you know what we wanted so we did maybe three or four takes of that one and um they were all around like eight nine minutes and the melody is just it was so you know it's just a beautiful melody and it, it sort of just did the trick just where it was uh, i mean and all the other takes we did one that was like kind of uber straight ahead that didn't fit at all and then we did um kind of like just a, tune, a take that was completely rubato that didn't it just seemed kind of long maybe and and I, I just i sat there listening to just the head in and i realized that you know i think this is kind of just the way it needs to be so and i thought it was just kind of like a nice opening statement for a recording you know in, in the story of all the tracks thought that was kind of worked well so yeah it's interesting because i think uh it I like the way it sets you up. It's almost like a – it's not a bait and switch, but it's like a misdirect like a magician might use. I mean it sets you up kind of in one space in your head when you start listening to the record. And then two and a half minutes in, you're in this whole other world, which I think is nice to just kind of show the breadth of what you're about. Well, it's also a familiar song to a lot of people. So it kind of it, it kind of opens up your audience just right from the beginning, which I think is important. Um, and then it kind of takes a little turn, I guess, the next track. But – yeah, I think it, I, I like it. I'm happy with that. Yeah. Is sequencing a record like sequencing a live performance? Totally. And I'm uber anal about it, too. Uh, I mean, I, I come up with a set list like a couple of days before a gig, and I'll think about it real hard. And, I I mean, coming up with a order for your tunes on a record, I mean, me personally, I, I think about that before we record. Um, just like keys that they're in, you know, how the tempo... A number of different things. So you've got an idea of the order of the final record before you even get into the studio? Yeah. I mean, I, I know what I'm going to record, and I'll think, like, well, you know, I think that would be a nice, like, you know, last tune. Like, Jamie on this, I, I, I was thinking the whole time, like, definitely last tune. Good way to exit. And then when you're in the studio, you know, like a lot of TV and movies and stuff are filmed totally out of order. When they're, you're in the studio, are you recording in the order that you think it might be on the album, or is it just... No, that's... I don't know if that is that if that's a good way to do it. Um, I'm trying to think of what we did first. Actually, you know, I think we did a tune. Called, we did a Warm Mars tune that didn't actually make it on the record first. Just like a good straight ahead something to get into, you know, right, right from the get go. But um, yeah, I never thought about recording in album order. But yeah, that could be a good way to do it. Yeah, and I don't know if people do other than albums. Well, maybe not even on albums that are. Uh, Sweets, but yeah, I don't. I doubt most people actually record in the right. that a sequence. I, I didn't really expect to spend so much time talking about the sequencing, but since you think about it a lot, are there 
tunes that you think take on a different character given what precedes or follows them? Uh, are, there, are there ways that the sequencing well, changes the nature of, of the tunes because of the context? Yeah, I mean, what, it, the whole thing should be a story, in my opinion. I mean, I think nobody listens to a record from start to finish very often, I think, nowadays. I mean, they're not records. People say, oh, did you hear that one track on this guy's record? You know, uh, Mark Turner's got a killing solo on that. <laughs> right. You know, it's like, okay, yeah. And then, like, people check check out that tune. And that totally ruins a record. I mean, it, and I'm guilty of it, too. I mean, there's records that I was listening to, like, in high school and college. I try not to do it anymore. But that that someone's like, oh, did you hear that solo on that record? It's so killing. And so now I, I'll think of that record, and I've only, like, listened to that one tune. And now I'm just starting to like explore the rest of other, you know, rest of the records. And it happened recently. Uh, someone recommended a band called The Bird and the Bee, mm-hmm. and um, and when they were showing me the record, they're like, "These two tunes are awesome." And I was like, "Okay." And so I listened to them a lot, and I got kind of hooked on those. And I was like, "Wait, I should check out the rest of the record too." So now I've been like exploring like track like six and seven, and like you know, not just like the first two. You know. Yeah, it's funny you say that. I often found um, when I worked in radio and was selecting the music that a lot of promoters would send you the record and they would say, you know, check out tracks, you know, two, four, and seven or whatever, mm-hmm. which I tried to ignore. I even when I listen to records now, I never read anything. I don't look at who's in the band. I don't read the liner notes or anything. I just as much as quick as I can, I take it out of the box and I put it in the CD player and just listen to it. Right. For exactly that reason, because I don't want to. I don't want to be waiting for the thing someone already told me was going to be cool. I just want to see what the artist intended it to sound like, which I right. guess maybe is a throwback way to <laughs> still do that. Yeah, I mean, you should make a record where you're happy with every track. And they should all... Well, yeah, you should just be happy with every track. I mean, if you're not ready to record a record, don't record a record. I mean, I imagine it seems like 40, 50 years ago, you had labels that were like, okay, you're going to go in the studio at this date, and then four months from then, you're going to make another record. You're not on like a serious time schedule, I think these days than maybe it used to be. I don't know if that's the case, but you, know, you got all the time in the world and you can make a record so easily, just do it in your own time and be happy with the whole thing. So I think that's important. Thank you. 
can you talk a little bit about yourself uh, as a as a writer? Are you one of those people who writes every day? Do you write when the inspiration strikes you? Or are you somewhere on the spectrum? Um, I used to write every single day. Uh, when I was in college, I wrote a tune a day for three years, which was awesome. But I didn't really have much else to do. Um, and did you do that intentionally? You said to yourself, I'm going to write. I had a teacher my freshman year, uh, Jerry Braganzi, my freshman year at NEC. He said, man, you should write a tune every day. And I said, okay. So I wrote a tune every day for three years. Um, I mean, not all they weren't all finished, but I came up with a concept usually and uh, sat down at the piano every day and, and, and wrote a tune, or, you know, tried to write a tune. Uh, now it's like uh, more of when I'm like feeling inspired. Um, I had very bad writer's block for uh, about two years, like end of college, beginning of when I was living in New York for various reasons and um so i was i remember i met fred hirsch and i went over to his place and uh we were playing and I, he said did you bring any music and i said you know nothing i'm really happy with it's kind of old and like i've had bad writer's block and he said um well let me give you an idea you know and so he said i had really bad writer's block too and what i did is i wrote like a 12-part suite and everything was dedicated to something a flower, a dog, a person, a whatever. Just think about them and write. And I found that very helpful. So, um, like one of the tunes on the record I wrote for a club owner. Uh, another tune I wrote, um, oh, Ab Reaction. Uh, someone sent me a list of weird words, and that was the first one on the list. And um, with the meaning of it, uh, it's like a type of therapy. I thought about it, and I wrote a tune based on it, just the way it made me feel. Before the rain used to be called Today's Tuesday, and when I was in college, I started writing a tune, that tune Today is Tuesday, which is based on a poem that a uh, woman named Ruth Lepson wrote, a great mm -hmm. poet. So that kind of helped, him saying that. Yeah, it's funny, uh, as you were describing that, and then you made a poetry reference, I was thinking about the idea of poetry prompts, which is a common way in the poetry world to, you know, if you're kind of stuck for something to write about, you, you know, the you'll get a phrase or someone will post a photograph or whatever and say, just write something based on this. Uh -huh. um, yeah, which seems like a great way to kind of open it's up helpful. the It's helpful yeah. as hell. I mean, I, I'm thinking about making a new record maybe in the summer, and I haven't written something that I've been happy with for like a while, or even just sat down and really written in a while. So I'm, I need to sort of use that uh, method, I think, yeah. coming up soon.
you said uh, at the piano, do you usually write at the piano? Is that? I think it's good. But the way I do it is I, I'll pick up my horn, and if a melody doesn't like come to me quickly, um, sometimes I'll just... Actually, what I find helpful is I, I'll, I'll sit down and I'll hit record, and I'll just kind of noodle or come up, try to come up with melodies or... Um, and then I'll listen back and maybe find like some kind of melody that I wasn't aware of that I played. Or sometimes I'll listen to recordings. Uh, I, I think the best way to practice is to listen to yourself. So I record like every gig, um, every session, every everything. And I'll listen back and sometimes I'll, I'll listen to people's solos and try to pick up like fragments of lines that I think would be cool melodies for tunes. I think that's good too. Yeah. Um, just like really any way that I can come up with anything is because uh, it's so hard to get inspired, you know, and well, for me at least. Um, yeah, it's very helpful. What else are you listening for when you're listening back to those recordings? Uh, well, I mean, obviously I'm very critical. Um, so tone, um, uh, like how, my, how I sound, um, just in all registers of the horn, and... Um, just, I mean, things just strike me either in a good way or a bad way. I'll, I'll take notice of it and either avoid it or, you know. I mean, sometimes you get caught in, in things that, uh, I mean, you hear in everybody, in Train, in Lovano, in uh, Tom Harrell, in, in West Montgomery. I mean, you hear it in everybody's playing. They kind of like fallback lines that, you know, that they sometimes go to. Um, which, I mean, it's just their own voice, but... I try to like just stay away from those things and at least just notice it. So you know, next time I'm playing, I can maybe like go in another direction. You know. Yeah. Um, the the band on this record is ridiculous. Can you uh, talk about who's on the record with you? Yeah, uh, some of my favorite musicians ever. Um, Kimbro, uh, Frank Kimbro, pianist, um, played on my first record, my only other record, <laughs> which I recorded. I think my junior year in college. When I was in college, I, I was uh, hanging out with John McNeil, uh, trumpeter, and um, he said, you got to make a record. Who do you want? I'll, I'll help you produce it. Uh, it'd be great to have this when you go to New York, when you get the hell out of Boston. Which, um, so I was like, okay. And so we came up a list of three guys on every instrument uh, that I'd want to use. So call the first guy. If they're not available, can't make the rehearsal, then or the two days in the studio, next guy. And so... I was. I remember always liking Ben Allison's Medicine Wheel Band. Me too. <laughs> um, which I wish he still had because that band is freaking that band awesome. That was ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, my my parents are big jazz enthusiasts. They love all kinds of music, but jazz also. And I remember they had that uh, that one of that one of that band, the Riding the Nuclear Tiger, I think. And I always really liked that CD. And I was, that Kimbrough's on that. And so that was sort of my first taste of Frank. And I figured, I, and and just by his playing, I knew him also from Maria Schneider's band, and um, I thought his mu- his his sound would be great with my music. So he was number one; he could do it. That's how I, and and so I had John McNeil put uh, get me in touch with him. That's how I met Frank, and and we sort of have a an amazing um, connection musically, and I think we also see eye to eye on a lot of things. So it's just been an ongoing uh, friendship and just very nice thing that's happening between us. And then uh, Bear was also on that first record. He's just one of the most versatile musicians, amazing sound, and, and also hilarious to be around. And um, and him and him and I and, and Matt Wilson, 
went to Australia last year on like a little couple week tour. It was like some of the most fun I've ever had hanging out with those guys. And Matt, I met through Frank, I think. I mean, I, I knew who he was and uh, heard him a million times, but finally I got to meet him a couple years ago and, and we got to play and um, started using him more and more. And, you know, just a wonderful person and uh, complete musician. So, yeah, I love my band. I thought they all worked well together, and they did. And, uh, yeah, I'm very happy with it. That's yeah. great. And I'll just say for the listeners that uh, Frank and Matt have both been on the show and are in the archives, and, uh, and John will be pretty soon, so people can, uh, can check that out. asking people this question a lot recently which is what you see or what you saw as your role as the the leader of the project um when you were preparing to go in the studio and when you were in the studio what what was kind of the what were some functions that you you saw yourself as playing besides being a musician on the date um with this band it's so easy i mean there's really like we didn't rehearse you know i mean we've been playing some of the music before the record date but, I mean, we were in the studio for like four hours, no rehearsal. It was like so easy, um, which is, I think, very rare. Uh, we all recorded in the same room, we weren't, you know, so we weren't isolated. And it was just like, you heard what was happening, everyone's on the same page, easy. Um, so I'm lucky to have these guys in this kind of like uh, unifying thing about the band. So really, I didn't have to do any work except come up with the music and explain how I wanted the tunes to be and and what kind of like vibe I was going for, and then that was it. Yeah. Really, you know, I had to get them to the recording session <laughs> right. and then get them home. That was pretty much it. Right. You know, very easy going, super easy. Yeah. So after the fact, you've got uh, all of uh, the tracks recorded, many of them uh, in a single take, and then what's your involvement like after that? I mean, everyone's always like, don't listen to it right away. But I don't know how many people of those people actually don't listen to it right away. You know, <laughs> it's like, I mean, I got in the car and I put it on. You know, I was like, I got to hear this. Right. Uh, and I hated it. I hated wow. it. Wow. Okay. Um, I mean, I, I had a little injury uh, a couple of days before. And so I was kind of out of it. And 
uh, I remember being hotter than hell, and it was just like very uncomfortable. And um, and the guys were like, "Oh, this is great. It's going to be great." Uh, Pat Rusty at Palmetto Records was like, "This is great." Engineer was like, "This is great." Matt Balatzeris. I mean, and I was like, "Man, I'm just not like really feeling this right now," you know. And I was freaking out. I was like, "Shit, I'm going to have to like reschedule this," and like, you know, this is going to be a drag. And then I let, actually I let a couple of days go by after I like listened to it a lot, and then uh, I was like, "Wait, this is actually I'm really happy with this." And so maybe that's true. Maybe you should give it a couple of days. But um, so yeah, after listening to it, and um, and then I had I and I kind of solidified my, the order. You know, I had an idea and then uh, for it, and then uh, you know, f- made sure it was cool, and um, just had it mixed, had it mastered, and and that was it. You uh, you said your parents are music aficionados and and fans of jazz. Is that does that explain your entry into the music, or was it something else? I was always around music uh, in the house, uh, from like weather report to train to um, uh, Joni Mitchell to um, uh, Grateful Dead. To, like every like a lot of stuff, uh, classical music, uh, jam band music. I grew up a big Fish head. Um, you know, I always liked the pop, some of the pop, like Third Eye Blind, you know, Chili Peppers, you know, everything. Uh, but they helped me kind of just, uh, they just supplied it, and, and it was there to hear if I wanted to. They never pressured me into doing anything. I said, you know, if you want to be a musician, yeah, I'll drive you to Pennsylvania to take a lesson with Liebman. Or, you know, just amazing, very supportive. Um, so when, a time, when, when it came time to pick up an instrument, it was like fifth grade or whenever, you know, most schools like make you learn an mm-hmm. instrument. And uh, I wanted to play the drums and I didn't, I auditioned, they only took, I think, six. I didn't make it. So I was like, shoot, you know, maybe I'll play the saxophone. Picked up alto and um, and it just kind of came easy to, easy to me and I just enjoyed doing it. Uh, and I was practicing like six, seven hours a day up until like high school and practicing my ass off and, and checking out a lot of music. I had a great... Uh, private teacher, so I think that helped, and he kind of kicked my butt a little bit. So did Liebman. Um, so yeah, just pushed in the right way, I think. Where did you grow up? What part of the country? Um, I grew up in a town called Canton, in Connecticut. Okay. Uh, sort of like the northwesty kind of corner of Connecticut. There was a there's a guy who lives in Canton who uh, runs the arts department in West Hartford, Connecticut, at a, uh, at a school called Hall High School. Um, and he's like, you know, you should think about moving to West Hartford to go to school at Hall. And it's just a regular public high school, but it's uh, bred like Meldow went there, Joel Fromm went there, Richie Barsha, Drew Sayers, Eric Von Kleist. A lot of great musicians have come from there. Um, and so I was like, you know, my parents being totally the most awesome people ever, were like, okay, we want the best for our son. Um, yeah, let's go. So they kind of like they rented out the house in Canton. They they bought a little house in West Hartford, went to school there, and then they sold the house there, and then moved back to Canton. Yeah, very lucky, very totally, very lucky. Thank you. 
I'm always interested about is people who think that a career as a musician is an achievable goal because for many people it seems like uh, something you could never possibly achieve to play music for a living. So I, I'm always interested about what in people's upbringing or in their experience in school or wherever it might be makes it seem like oh playing the saxophone for a living is something I could actually do. Can you? Well, it's nice to do that? something or think that you want to do something that you enjoy for a career. How many people that lay asphalt in 110 degree weather? We're like, I want to do this, you know, for a career. That's sad, uh, you know. And it's nice that, like, I mean, that's that's really depressing, actually, to think about. <laughs> it's great if you can if you can find a way to make a living doing something you'd like to do, you know. And I've sort of found a way to do it. I mean, it's totally. I mean, I was told Liebman when I was 12 years old said, "Man, you know that this is really, really hard. You're not going to make money." You know, it's very depressing lifestyle. Uh, you need to find ways to make money. It's very difficult. Um, there's a million people like you that are trying to do the same thing. And and I remember, like when I was a kid, my dad always said to me, "You know, it's easier to be an NBA player than it is to become a successful musician. There's only a handful of you. you know, it's really hard." Yeah, I mean, it's 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 not easy. I mean, even I mean, Elvin Jones drove a cab. You know, Ben Monder. Um, Frank Kimber, I mean, everybody, you know, when they moved to New York City, it's like, you got to make some money somehow. How the hell are you going to do it? So when I moved to New York, I had a, a day job in Jersey. I was like sorting blueprints at a building firm for you know, almost a year. That sucked. It took me two and a half hours to get there each way. Um, and I was making crappy money, and but I needed to make some money. You know, it's hard. So I was worn very young, and I still... You know, realize it. I still tell all my students, like, it's really hard. You really want to do this. And so for you, has it been kind of an organic thing of making connections and kind of piece by piece putting together your... your it has presence? to do with, like, just being respectful and meeting people and networking and being nice and not having an ego and being cool and, um, and you know, talking when you're supposed to talk and not pissing people off and, um, yeah. I mean, I think how you handle yourself is very important. Uh, how you look, uh, how you are on stage. Um, I mean, if you got two guys that uh, can both play, and I mean, this is kind of a lame example, but it's like that the college thing. Like, if you have like two resumes that are exactly whatever, but like you know, if one guy looks like a slob and he's wearing like a backwards baseball hat and a hoodie, and the other guy is like all very you know nicely dressed, and you know. You're gonna automatically want to listen to him, if you don't. I guess maybe if you don't have any, you know what I mean. <laughs> I, I think it's I think it's important how you handle yourself. Right. So, yeah. It's interesting that the first word that you use to describe how you have built your your presence here uh, was being respectful. Can you say more about that? Uh, 
Well, nobody wants to hang out with the douchebag. Right. End of story. You yeah. know what I mean? Unless, like, you're so unbelievably killing and you have the most incredible history that you can get away with it and people ignore it. But, um... I mean, when I was in Boston, I met Cecil McBee. And uh, the guys... I mean, Cecil has played with everybody. Um, literally everybody. Um, and so he said, man, you know, when you move to New York, call me. Let's hang out. Let's play. Let's hang out. He lives in Park Slope. Um, so uh, I was like, okay. So I called him when I moved here. We went and got beers. You know, I bought the first round. You know, I was like, man, it's great to hang out with you. He's like, want, wants to play. You know, and then he started hiring me for his band. We had a couple of gigs. I mean, his band is like George Cables, Victor Lewis, Eddie Henderson. Right, put it, together there like seven gazillion years right. of jazz. I mean, it's like, you know, 90% of the jazz, or <laughs> right. 90% of jazz records. So, um, I mean, and I'm just this little child sitting there. I mean, what am I going to sit there and like talk about myself? You know, you just, you got to have like some kind of common sense. You know, I'm just a fly on the wall listening to these great stories and uh, man, you know, Victor, it was so great to play with you. You know, hope we can do it again. George, man, I love your playing. You know, um, this record was always one of my favorites. You know, some bullshit like that. You know, it's just like, be respectful, be nice. Um, you know, being, a, being an asshole is never going to get you anywhere. So, and that was always drilled into me as a kid. I think that's very important. Unfortunately, some people have to learn that the hard way when they move here and they have a huge head. Someone's going to, put them in there because someone will definitely put them in their place right you know it can be a challenge if you were the best player at your school to move to new york where you're yeah not even the best player maybe in your apartment building yeah yeah and it's good for someone to tell you that when you're younger so you don't get embarrassed when you're older right you know it's interesting i the other day i counted up that there's like 400 something of these interviews that i've done and i don't think anyone has ever made the point of how important it is to be respectful respectful yeah. Yeah. Which seems to me to be kind of at the core. Totally. <laughs> I think how you handle yourself is unbelievably important. How does that work among your peers? I mean, it's so it's clear why you would want to be respectful to people who have much greater resumes than you. Do you find that the same kind of navigation is useful when you're talking to people who are your own your own age or younger who are? Yeah. I mean, the people that are older than you are going to be dead in thirty years. Well, from, in my case, right. you know, people that are 50 are going to be dead in, you know, 30, 40 years. And then you got people that, I mean, that, that are your age that you're going to be playing with or younger, you know. So, I mean, it's obviously, you should respect everybody, you know. Um, yeah, everybody. Talk about some of the projects you're involved in besides uh, your own band. Uh, okay, let's see. None. No. Um, <laughs> I know that's not true because I've seen your itinerary. <laughs> uh, let's see. Well, I was playing with Cecil's band, which is always totally amazing. Uh, but he works so much as a side man, you know. Uh, so nothing really lined up for the future. Um, who am I playing with? I play with a drummer named Rob Garcia. Mm -hmm. You know Rob? Yep. Um, he writes really interesting music. It's not like your you know, standard, like, let's play the head, let's play a solo, let's take the head out now. You know, um, it's like different sections and it makes sense and um, everybody in the band like is interesting and like cool and I love playing with him and he's a great guy also uh, so we did a record about a year ago I think called Perennial uh, and actually we're going to the studio in a couple of weeks so we got some stuff coming up and uh, we're playing this weekend a week ago 
Uh, yeah, so it, it will have passed by the right, time. Right, it will have passed. Yeah. Um, and, uh, You're playing as part of the, the Brooklyn B- Jazz Underground yeah, yeah, yeah. Festival. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah, we have a bunch of stuff coming up. So um, doing a record with him, so that's great. Um, I love playing with singers. Uh, I play with a singer that actually she grew up in the same area as me in Connecticut, and then she went to school in Boston also. Her name is Dana Lauren. Mm-hmm. Totally just straight ahead, standards, you know, um, but it's I, I love it. She's got a great voice, um, but it's great because I get to learn tunes in totally screwed up keys, which is great practice. Right. <laughs> you know, um, I, I remember like I was in Borders or Barnes and Noble or whatever it is in, in the Prudential Center in Boston, and I heard a tune, Benny Goodman. I knew it was Benny Goodman, and I was like, "What the hell is that tune?" And then uh, I can't remember if I found. Oh, and then, and then I had a rehearsal with Dana. And we played Where or When. I was like, oh, that's what that tune was. So I got to learn the tune, you know, but that tune stuck in my head, and then I got to learn it with her. So that kind of thing. Um, Talk a little bit about what it's like to play with a singer when you're the other single-line instrument. Um, how, do you, how do you navigate around uh, a vocalist? Well, again, respect is like a big thing. You don't want to – it's their gig. Right. Um, you don't want to kind of overstep your boundaries, you know. You just – it's a conversation. You're complimenting each other kind of, and – I mean, that Train and Johnny Hartman record is, like, my favorite record recording yeah, ever. It's pretty high up on my list. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I mean, I've listened to that probably more than anything. Just the way Train is, like, subtly kind of, like, weaving in and out of Hartman's stuff and, and how their tones are, like, you know, differ but are so, like, similar. And I, think, I just think it's a very pretty, beautiful way of playing. And it strikes me as not something everyone can do. And the people who do it well, like I've always maintained, and maybe it's sacrilege, but I've always maintained that my favorite era of Branford Marsalis was when he played with Sting, and which, and I, that's when I was growing up, and I saw that band several times with Branford and Sting, the Blue Turtles band, and um, because I, for exactly the reason you mentioned with Train and Hartman, which might be in a different level, but uh, because he so perfectly knew when to be there and when not to be there. And when he was there, it was always to raise like the general level of emotion, whether that was excitement or sadness or whatever it might have been. Right. I think that's a very particular skill to be able to know how to say something quickly and meaningfully in the presence of someone else who's taking the main bulk of the narrative. Definitely. Yeah. Also, in addition to that, I mean, how many... I mean, uh, I think that it's important to be able to play ballads and... That means have a nice tone, and that means how to make a statement um, where you're very exposed, uh, and how to phrase a melody in a pretty way. I mean, it's easy to kind of just like blah, 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 over like a fast tune, but when you're playing, when you're wide open like that on a ballad, you're very exposed. How many ballads players? How many people that? I mean, you need to be able to be a, ball, a good ballads player to play with a singer, in my opinion. Um, and so I think that separates a lot of people. You know, I mean, I'm sure you can think of in your head uh, people that wouldn't, that can't really play a ballad. They also couldn't probably like sound very good with a singer. You know, sure. I, I think that's really important, being a ballads player and playing with a singer. Yeah, and they kind of go hand in hand. My guest is Noah Preminger. He has a new CD called Before the Rain. It's on Palmetto Records, and I've really enjoyed talking to you, man. Thanks a lot Likewise, for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Yeah.
That's music from Noah Preminger and his CD, Before the Rain. I'm Jason Crane. This is the Jazz Session, presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is available for free at thejazzsession.com. You can also find it in iTunes, and you can subscribe using an RSS reader, and all those links are at thejazzsession.com. And while you're there at the website, please do become a member. I need your help to keep this show going, and that is no joke. So please join today. Thanks very much. The show also has a Facebook group and a newsletter. You can find all of those details at thejazzsession.com. And I'm on Twitter, and I often tweet about jazz things and other things at twitter.com slash Jason D. Crane. Get out there now, if you would, please, and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Thank you for listening. Bye.